This is Broccoli. Content that's good for you. This podcast may contain strong language and themes listeners might find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. It turns out not being qualified for a job doesn't mean you won't get it. Prince Charles named Katy Perry an ambassador of the British Asian Trust and people were confused because so many others would have been better suited for the role. As Tahmina Begum wrote in the iPaper, getting married in Rajasthan and having a tattoo in Sanskrit doesn't automatically make you qualified. Then, Jamila Jamil faced backlash for accepting a role as a judge on HBO's voguing competition series Legendary. But no one understands her connection to ballroom culture. Did anyone else see Pretty Patel's car crash interview with Sky News? She kept mixing up terrorism with counter-terrorism. Maybe these ladies need to take the L, acknowledge the situation, and let someone else do the job. I've been all about embracing your losses this week. We live in a world that constantly flaunts achievements, which is great most of the time. But when you're having a bad day or a bad week, it feels so much worse because if you're not doing well, you feel like you're failing. Can you believe The Sims turned 20 this week? That's right, the original game was released on the 4th of February 2000. And the nostalgia of building ridiculous mansions with pools in them, only to drown your sims later, somehow never wears off. I wish I could go back to being five years old, listening to the jazzy soundtrack and worrying about child services coming to collect my neglected baby that never grows up. EA confirmed it's busy working on Sims 5. I wonder if this one will include the existential threat of irreversible climate change to give it a fresh dose of 21st century life. This is Your Broccoli Weekly. I'm your host, Diora. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review our show. A huge thanks to everyone who has so far. In today's episode, we will be discussing the Streatham terrorist attack, journalist boycotting number 10 and Philip Schofield's coming out story. I'm joined by Joe's Head of News and Politics, Ollie Dugmore, and Independence Commissioning Editor and Columnist, Kuba Shand Baptiste. Several people had been stabbed by the suspect. Some were treated by passers-by who saw the horror on a Sunday afternoon. So the recent terror attack in Streatham. On Sunday, Sudesh Aman, 20, was shot dead by police in Streatham, South London, after stabbing two people. He was wearing a fake bomb vest. The convicted terrorist was being followed by police when he pulled out a knife and attacked. Many in Streatham were shocked a terrorist event took place on their doorstep because it's not a tourist area of central London. Sudesh Aman was under active counter-terrorism surveillance. The country's most senior counter-terrorism officer said he had his heart set on martyrdom. And people who knew him said that he openly spoke of being a terrorist. But people thought he was joking. He had just served half of a 40-month sentence for possessing and distributing terrorist material. Aman was released from prison towards the end of January. It was just three months ago when two people were tragically killed near London Bridge by Usman Khan. Khan was out on licence from prison when he launched his attack in central London. 
There have been some serious questions raised over why people who were already under watch were able to commit such attacks. Government now plans to introduce an emergency legislation to end the automatic early release of people convicted of terrorism charges. The Home Secretary announced new initiatives to tackle extremism, one of which is essentially locking people up forever, if needs be. Kuba, do you think this is a good strategy to deal with terrorism? Not at all. I think it's it's the sort of reactionary policy that sort of that you'd expect from this government. It serves to <laughs> to place it to help people who have all these rational fears about terrorism and immigration sort of linked together. And the idea of sort of throwing people away um, and saying that well, that's it. That's all we need to do is ridiculous. We've had like IPP sentences, for example, and we have people committing suicide all the time because there is no end in sight, because there is no hope, and if people are being radicalised inside prison, then keeping them in there for longer, it's not going to really do anything to solve the, the issue. Absolutely. Well, Sudesh has expressed his desires for martyrdom for years, and his mother believes he got even more radicalised when he served his time in prison. Prevent is one of the four elements of contest, the government's counter-terrorism strategy. Oli, do you think we need to reassess Prevent? Is it failing? Well, I certainly think the government needs to take a hard look at itself. You know, there's been a lot of talk, particularly from Boris Johnson and sort of number 10, around this this legislation and how ridiculous it is that these offenders have been able to get out of prison, which sort of forgets that it's conservative legislation enacted, you know, during their time in government. First of all, the question of how we deal with terrorism, terror offences more broadly is one that sort of, for me, has been open really since New, New Labour um, and Tony Blair, where I think we sort of started to see the infringement of basically our, our basic civil liberties and our civil rights, things like habeas corpus, things that have been established since Magna Carta. And it's a historical trend also to blame terrorism outsiders, people who threaten the very, you make it existential, you know, a threat to the very foundation of our society. And you use that to justify increasingly draconian justice policy, whether it's detention without trial or without charge for 15, 30, 40, 60 days, or an unlimited prison sentence. Just take the last two terror attacks as examples, people who have recently been released. I think that's a fairly good indication that the current strategy isn't working. The government's anti-radicalisation prevent strategy is to be independently reviewed after ministers gave into long-standing pressures to address concerns over impacts on communities. Civil liberties and human rights organisations such as Amnesty International have been calling for an independent review of prevent for some time, claiming it fosters discrimination against people of Muslim faith or background and inhibits legitimate expression. Critics have called it a toxic brand and argued that at its heart is an ideological purity test that means Western foreign policy cannot be criticised and that the government is prepared to work only with those who don't challenge it. Surely we need to look at wider societal issues as well and the way they can impact radicalisation. We definitely need to, but I think that's that's the, the issue that goes to the heart of the criminal justice system in the UK is that we never look at those issues. We never look at what causes these problems in the first place. We're more preoccupied with punishing people, with making sure that they're locked away than we ever have been with looking into the causes of most of these sentences in the first place and what makes people offend repeatedly, what makes people end up in these situations and why it's so hard to come out of the system once you've been in it. If you've been in it, at a young age, for example, if you've been in the system in terms of foster care, for example, like you're more likely to to end up down that route and to punish someone for being born into something that they can't help, for something they've had no resources or no help with, is ridiculous. And I think that there is a need to overhaul the entire system. 
whether or not it's going to happen under this government, well, it, it won't. <laughs> That's just not what they're going to do. That's not their priority at all. But it's just, it's depressing and it's it's upsetting when you have all these organisations that have all this intel, all this research that tells you exactly what should be done or could be done to alleviate the situation. And then no one's listening. <laughs> and you've got Pretty Patel, who doesn't even understand what the difference is between terrorism and counterterrorism, for example. Like, it's ridiculous. I totally agree with you. And yeah. I think... The Home Office actually part-funded a study recently called Youth Empowerment and Innovation Project. Um, they part-funded it and they've actually stepped away from it now. No one's attending the conference. No minister, Secretary of State is attending the conference. I think probably because the findings basically contradict the policy that they're pursuing. The research calls Patel's own policy, the policy measure that she's now adopted, madness. Rightly so, because the definition of insanity, for me, is repeating the same process and expecting different results. How many times is this going to happen? And it doesn't matter whether it's serious organised crime or um, extremist ideology. If we keep pursuing the same measures, expecting these things, you know, these things to diminish and be reduced, and they're not, why are we doing that? Um, and I would also point towards um, a study by Dr. Baz Dreisinger, comprehensive global study, looking at essentially whether harsher sentencing, harsher justice policy has any impact on offending rates, found no correlation across the world. So you can play this populist card because it's what Jeff the cab driver wants to hear. But if you're actually serious about tackling the problem, you should be looking at, you know, kids who are expelled from schools, children who suffer domestic abuse. I think those are far better indicators of future behaviour, commonalities and things to act on than what we're doing at the moment. I mean, not that it's only incredibly inhumane to just lock up people forever with no strategy but we also i don't think we have the resources to be able to do that right do we have the money i know no. not at all we've really got issues with overcrowding and with the lack of resources you have doctors who work in prisons sort of screaming out and saying we have nothing <laughs> there's there's no way that we can deal with this level of of self-harming and of depression of all these issues that aren't being dealt with um it's it's a massive massive issue and i just I don't see how pretending that extending sentences or proposing that we look at what what was it? I think previously I wanted to criminalise sort of terrorist uh, related propaganda, for example. But that, that could be anything. <laughs> it's just it literally could be anything. Um, especially we've seen Prevent go after sort of left wing um, activist groups and stuff like that. It's just to do business as usual, pretty much, and to make sure that they that they have the support on the ground from people who want to see these people locked away forever and don't really want any solution at all. There's, there's two things I would say to say in relation to this. The first is that the Ministry of Justice budget has been, I think in real terms, cut by about 40%, right? And the stated ambition, perhaps not so, totally explicitly, but at least heavily implied from the Conservative Party and David Cameron was to reduce the prison population because of the cost. And that's why we've seen these people being released okay the other thing i would say is that this is sort of totally different the the the, the threat the the act of terrorism in this instance is la is is totally different to basically anything that we've seen before right i using terrorism is a is a difficult term it's a pejorative term you know it's it's essentially it's subjective it's the you know one man's um terrorist is another man's freedom fighter etc but if you look at terrorists that we've dealt with in the past the ira black september it's a calculated use of force or violence to achieve a political aim. So, for example, the Harrods bombing by the IRA, instead of putting the bomb inside Harrods where they would have killed tens, hundreds of people, they put it outside. They still killed people, 
but they thought, realised the calculation was if we kill that many people, we're going to drive the Conservative Party away from negotiation because it will be politically impossible for them to come to the negotiating table after enacting something like that. Contrast that with fundamentalist, um, Islamist terrorism that we're seeing at the moment, which is essentially nihilistic clash of civilizations, total destruction of the West. So how do you deal with that? Because it's no, it's not come to the negotiating table and discuss the, the partition of Ireland. It's we want to destroy your society. And and and, and but how does someone get to that stage? Mm in a country that is seeing increasing Islamophobia, which I'm sure contributes to the well, no to question. people being radicalized. For me, if you're a Muslim and you're being persecuted by by people in this country, I don't think it you don't need it's not a big ju- logical jump to be like, okay, maybe these guys aren't the good guys. Exactly. But so many people don't, right? Mm. So many Muslims don't. And so the way it's always painted is that we have this big problem and we can't solve it. But we can. But it would start with the government looking at itself mm. and the way it acts. But also, what about police cuts? Mm. You know, we we have way less police on the streets. That is also going to have an effect in the way that we deal with these situations. Yeah, I, I don't know what, what you think, Cooper, but my, my, my initial view on that would be that actually I think the police response to when the attack happened in Streatham was actually in, incredibly Incredible. good. Great, yeah. Se- seconds, really, from, mm. from when it started before to the moment he was shot. Similarly with London Bridge. Um, I would say that the police response was was pretty good, but that is far removed from community policing and neighbourhood policing, which is sort of the area mm. that you would be looking at mitigating, getting ahead of this problem before it actually happens. Exactly. And there needs to be an attempt to at least to strengthen community bonds as well between neighbourhood police and, and the communities that have to live <laughs> where they're working anyway. Um, because if that doesn't happen, then obviously then you'll have this continued issue of people being criminalised disproportionately, for because of who they are, whether or not they're Muslim or, or, or people of colour. Um, and if that's not there, then there's never going to be trust and there will be these issues will spiral out of control as they have been and it will continue to be an issue. But I don't think necessarily that, yeah, that saying, oh, we'll, we'll add, which as Boris Johnson did, <laughs> say, oh, we'll get 10,000 more police officers, 20,000, is going to solve the issue. It's going to, we're not going to see immediate results because yeah, get, of that. Get more police officers that they cut before. Exactly, right. to get back to the level we had in the first place kind of thing. Like, it's not, it's not going to do much. It's been a valuable 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. But how can we tell if de-radicalisation is effective? Because we'll never hear about the, you know, the times that it has actually worked. I guess I think if, we're, if we pivoted to more of a sort of research-based um, approach, I guess that would be a way of looking at what's happening and what's working and what's not, if the information is out there. But... In terms of just waiting <laughs> and the whole group of people saying, <laughs> just, I've been changed, it's, that's not going to happen. That's not, oh yeah, as, as we were saying before, like we, all, we only know if these things aren't working really because more incidents will, hap- will happen like this when we have people in such similar situations. But I'm not sure that it will ever be easy to say, okay, so everything's great now, the, the program's working because... No one is. <laughs> there are no terrorists anymore. <laughs> That's never going to happen. I, I perhaps also um, thinking about this a little bit, throw a little bit of, be a bit more cautious because I think really we've had two two terror attacks in the last year or so, and I know this is a pretty grim way to describe it, but fairly fairly low levels of casualties. You know, the two people who were killed at London Bridge. You know, it's two people, two people that shouldn't be killed, but it's only two people. No one was killed in Streatham, and so if we look at it from that broader perspective. You know, for example, 
it's not a bombing. You know, it's it's one person with a knife. And if that's if that's like the threshold, if that's where we're at in terms of how how terror is being enacted on our streets, is that pretty good? Mm. In a in a, a weird, I know that sounds very morbid. No, I know, I know what you mean because if you look at the scale, I lived in the UK since two thousand and five, and I seem to remember more terrorist incidents in you know a long time ago. So I don't think there's been like a, a dramatic increase. Mm. So yeah. Certainly in terms of the number of um, fatalities, it was about 50 or 60 people in the 7-7 bombings. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I know, not not on UK shores, but the 3,000 or so people who were killed in, um, in on 9-11, you know, those sort of mass acts, at least for the time being, been reduced. And that's, and that can, that's obviously a God good thing. people yeah. don't have easy access to guns. Yes, you know? abso- yeah. absolutely. Because yeah. obviously, yeah. you know, you look over to America and their horrific shootings, like on a weekly basis. Daily. Mm-hmm. I think that's what the issue is. We're kind of still reeling from a lot of these massive sort of colossal incidents and sort of imagining every other incident that follows. It's much, much smaller, but it's still terrible as sort of being on par with that. It's like we're all collecting them and saying, see, this is the same thing. And it's it's not really. Um, I think we need to have that conversation too, as you were saying. Like, it sounds really gross to I mean, also the way it's it, reported on, right? Yeah. Like when the London Bridge attack was happening, it was really really horrific and it's it's so sad what has happened i just remember i was at work and everything stopped and everyone was you know gathered by the telly and just watching for you know the whole and no one could switch off for about a day and it's just we have a really interesting culture the way the media reports on terrorist attacks and the way it amplifies them as well definitely i think it's part of our human nature Mm. You know, you're not going to know. You're not going to notice it. You don't think about it, and then it hits you. And then all of a, that's that is the purpose of it. That's why it exists. That's why these tactics are used because it creates. A, you 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 don't have to strike regularly or often. You do it rarely, and it has this profound psychological impact. Absolutely, and then you know that's why we become so reactionary to it. Let's chat about the journalist who walked out of Number Ten on Monday. Political journalists boycotted a Downing Street briefing on the UK's trade negotiations on Monday after one of Boris Johnson's aides banned selected reporters from attending. Lee Kane, Johnson's most senior communications adviser, tried to exclude reporters from the Mirror, the Eye, Huffington Post, Politics Home, and the Independent from attending the official government briefing. Labour accused Johnson of using Donald Trump-like tactics to avoid scrutiny. This incident happened inside the foyer of Number Ten when journalists on the invited list were asked to stand on one side of a rug, while others were asked by the security to stand on the other. When this happened, journalists who were invited walked out to boycott Number Ten. Those who refused the briefing included BBC's Laura Koonsberg. ITV's Robert Peston and journalists from Sky News, The Daily Mail, The Sun, Telegraph, The Financial Times and The Guardian. Ollie, this sounds like an absolute joke. Can you believe it? Yeah, I mean, it sort of sounds like your worst nightmare at high school that you sort of, you go to a party and then you get put aside to one, one. it's like you're not on the list, you can't come in. I mean, it's incredibly embarrassing. I mean, the first thing I would say about all, all of the journals working out is that I fucking loved it. I absolutely loved the fact that people were like, not having this, I'm out of here. Counterpoint to that is I think that all of this relies on the assumption that political reporting in Westminster is done on a level playing field and that there isn't preferential treatments because, I mean, that is essentially how the whole lobby system operates. Mm. It's who are you friends with? Who are you buying pints for? How big is your publication? How many Twitter followers have you got? And based on those things, you get certain levels of access, you get certain pieces of information. Um, You know, I can't imagine 
Dominic Cummings is going to be leaking information to someone from for like for like a student politics blog. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Um, but I I still love that the show of solidarity and people walking out. I mean, it is it's a bit of a stunt, but again, I still just think it sort of relies on this fact, the assumption that all political reporters are created equal, and within the lobby, they're certainly not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kuba, what did you think? I mean, I kind that? of had similar thoughts. Really, I thought it was great that they were walked out and sort of. Showing that that sense of solidarity is gonna is what's gonna work in terms of stopping him from continuing to do these things, because I guess the the reason that it does work for Trump, for example, in America with Fox, for example, is that it helps them in a way, or they've seen it as a as a way to embrace being treated more favorably than other publications. So if we have sort of more solidarity in the press here, that's a good thing. As you were saying, with like with lobby and stuff like that, and people sort of having preferential treatment. I think it sort of stems from with with uh, I was going to call him Donald Trump, <laughs> Boris Johnson's own history um, in journalism and this sort of cynical look at yeah at how you treat different uh, publications and rewarding certain publications for spouting the lines that he wants to put out there. And I kind of like it was nice that it backfired and that that he assumed that most people would operate on the sort of same playing field, but no one really did. And hopefully it doesn't continue. But obviously this is. This is going to keep happening in some way or shape or form. Right, because that's the question that I had. I wasn't sure whether this like a, was a one-time thing or whether this will continue in the future. Do we know, realistically? Well, I, I, a couple of things to say. Um, just circling back a little, the first is that I have so little time for Labour accusing him of like Trumpian tactics here. When the Labour Party launched their manifesto in the general election, Laura Kunzberg stood up to ask a question and the Labour activists in the crowd were booing her. That is that is a that is a Trumpian rally. That is what happens at a Trump rally. The reporters are accosted and heckled by the supporters. Jeremy Corbyn calls a press conference with Barry Gardner to talk about a leaked document, and a journalist asks a question about anti-Semitism, and Barry Gardner says, "Can you not just ask us about what we're here to talk about today?" No, sorry, Barry, that's not how journalism works. I I interviewed Dawn Butler this week, and she was complaining about the media's treatment of the Labour Party. I I really don't have very much time. I think Labour are as culpable as the Conservative Party for these for these attacks on the media. I don't think I don't think it's a Tory only problem. That being said, the Prime Minister has done one major broadcast interview since the general election. That's nearly two months ago now. And no disrespect to Dan Walker on BBC Breakfast, but he is awesome. <laughs> but but, he, but you know, but he did you both watch that? Yeah, yeah. Of course yeah, I watched yeah. it. Oh, yeah, of course I watched the interview. Yeah, but. Uh, you know, like, he's a great journalist. He's a great presenter. Um, he didn't really push him, did he? He's not Andrew Neil, you know. And it, it looked like they were mates having we a chat. Get that on. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I can talk because, like, my when I interview politicians, my interview style is also friendly. Like, I'm trying to pull things out of people in a way that Andrew Neil doesn't. I think both both need to exist. However, it becomes a problem if the only interview style that the prime minister is doing is just that one kind. Um, and I think as well, it, it's it's relevant to digital media and digital strategy as well. Absolutely. Well, there have been growing concerns over censorship from Boris Johnson and his team. Before the election, we obviously saw him disappear and avoid most TV appearances. His communications team banned ministers from appearing on BBC Radio 4 and they were also advised not to have lunch with any political journalists. Broadcasters were unhappy that the Brexit Day address to the nation was filmed in Downing Street rather than a crew from a TV network. He's recently hired advisors who specialise in film production and photography. Now, you know, are there any fears that Johnson is trying to bypass the press? 
yeah, he's shown that he is and he doesn't, I don't think he cares either way, whether or not we think he is or not, he, he is doing that. And he's seen how it works and what works for him, especially with someone like Dominic Cummings behind him, sort of steering the way. And <laughs> I read somewhere that he had this sort of network of spies to make sure that none of these... Yes, this yeah, network of yeah, spies. To yes. stop them from having lunch with their favourite journalists. Sunday so. Times, that was. Yeah, so it was just, it's... It's happening in front of us in plain sight. We can all see that it's happening and it probably will escalate, probably in ways that we don't, or the average person won't re- realise or recognise um, until it's probably a bit too late. But I think th- the scary thing about things like this is that because he's not there, there's nothing to counter or nothing to argue against. And for people who don't, who aren't tapped into politics every single day, him not being there and not having a face and not being It's not the worst thing in the world. What do they have to compare that against? They don't, and it means that the, his the perception they have of him is is entirely created by him. And we have journalists obviously going out of their way to report on all the shady um, doings and stuff that are going on behind the scenes. But if you're not tapped into that anyway, and the prime minister's just the prime minister, and you see him when he feels like coming out, then what's the problem? There's no dissent, and it's it's all cool. You're so right. Yeah. The this discussion that we're having now right is he dodging scrutiny is he doing enough media like what's happening to the fourth estate this is a very journalist's exactly. london conversation exactly jeff in preston doesn't give a fuck that he hasn't seen boris johnson on the telly he doesn't care that he's not on radio mm. 4. he probably doesn't listen to radio 4 do you know what i mean and as a result of that and sorry this ties into the get brexit done strategy which at the moment basically translates to if politics is not on the telly brexit has gone away so it's in their interest to cool down the media and that and that is what's happening. You can guarantee that when he has something to shout about, he will be out and about shouting about it. In relation to what you were saying about digital and videographers and photographers, I think this is just a trend we're going to see more and more of. Social media essentially allows a politician to go direct to their voter. There is no middleman. Well, there is a middleman. It's just in Silicon Valley and there's very little interference, really, algorithmic. But when there's a reporter... It's going to be editorialized. They're going to be subject to scrutiny. Social media provides them basically with an unchecked opportunity to broadcast their message. It is essentially a TV camera without a journalist stood stood behind it asking the questions. So I think you'll see more and more of that across political parties. It seems like journalists don't really know how to cope with that, right? I mean, Absolutely. How, how do we cope with something that's changing so fast, tactics that we haven't really seen before? I mean, we've seen them across the pond, but we didn't really think that it would be so quick that they start happening here, right? Mm. I mean, we saw it in the election as well with, what was the fact check? <laughs> like, fact check UK. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> wow. Like, it was, that was insane that that happened. And, but you, as soon as it happened, I just knew this isn't going to have any impact on their campaign. No one is going to care after this happened. This isn't going to be the, the straw that breaks the camel's back and everyone's suddenly going to turn and vote for Labour instead. It's these dishonest, dishonest tactics work in in the short term, and they go away, and then we all forget about them. It ties back to what to to what we were just saying about basically like London Ferrari. No one else in the country cares mm. because Jeff and Preston does. He probably again probably doesn't even use Twitter. Doesn't care that they've rebranded their Twitter account. But what happens is journalists in London care because it's a breach on their their patch and sort of the the importance and the independence of journalism. So it gets reported on. But the way that it gets reported on is. The Conservative Party rebranded its Twitter account. No one's listening. 
and they started tweeting, get Brexit done. Well, what, you've, what the Conservative Party very cleverly has done is the media is reporting the story, but they're also repeating their messaging and it, al- and it allows them to communicate their political messaging in the same way, in the same way that they were doing it before. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> so very impressed, Steve. <laughs> well, because it just makes me think, how can we make people care? But then it makes me think, should we make people care? Is it our jobs? God, this is very introspective, isn't it? This is very soul searching. <laughs> I know three journalists sit in a what room. What do we do? Um, <laughs> I, I, I think people do care. I think people do care. I just think. But it's how do very... we deliver the information in a way that doesn't? Bore people. Well, that's life's, life's great question. Off. That's life's great question, isn't it? As for, for for me, anyway, probably not for most people. I should I should rephrase that. <laughs> There's certainly how to convey information in a way that doesn't bore people is not life's great question for most people. Um, but that, yeah, that's that's our challenge. That's uh, how good how good are you as a journalist? Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> I have no idea how to answer that question. To be honest, right now, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had the answer. Well, homework for all three of us. <laughs> Well, you know, having a free press is one of the many things that is great about this country. For a party that champions freedom of speech so much, this just doesn't sound like they love freedom of speech. Should we be worried? You know, do you think it's going to get worse? I think as long as these tactics work, then the more room they have to escalate them, if that makes sense. It's just, the, I guess the whole idea, because they were talking about the whole Canada-style trade agreement. And for people who understand a tiny bit about that, they, the, the negotiation is going to take a very long time. When when Canada was sort of agreeing that uh, comprehensive economic trade agreement, um, it took years to, to negotiate and to ratify. Um, and I guess the, the whole thing is that you don't want that getting out. You want everything to seem like it's in the bag and Brexit is being done <laughs> because that's it's, it's oven ready and it's it's all ready to happen. It's all these buzz phrases and, and ways of not really understanding what's being talked about. Um, and I guess it was just an attempt to make sure that the right lines were going out about that. And I think that's, if that works, it didn't work in that instance, but it will work in another instance. It'll work on social media, it'll work whenever Boris Johnson decides to make a speech about whatever else he wants us to draw our attention to. Um, and unfortunately, hope, hopefully we will see it coming. And that's, I guess that's the whole beauty of journalism, that people will have contacts and will sort of get ahead of the story before it happens. But in a lot of cases, we are just reacting to things that have happened already, which is unfortunate. If It feels like we're constantly trailing behind. So aside from journalists, how else can we hold the government to account? Hmm. That is a Demonstrate. hard question. Yeah, you know, if if you want to talk about the way to participate in politics, um, obviously reporting is one, and the media is one, but the other one is organisation and activism. And you know, I'm not just talking about like protesting against cuts or the Tory government. I'm saying if you care about the environment, or if you care about maternity leave or childcare. You know, there are hundreds of different areas, each with their own movements, activists, and messages. And if it's something that you care about, you can partake, you can demonstrate. I guess helping people to realise the ways in which certain policies affect them is sort of the biggest tool you can give the average person who might not be tapped into something anyway. Um, and that, I guess, needs to happen. That It needs to be more accessible. And we need to find ways of making different movements easier to understand for people who whose instinct might be to reject it because it seems too radical for them. Exactly, or alien to them. That's, that's such mm. a good point. I mean, one of the biggest criticisms that has come out of the last couple of years is that 
I feel like the media has become quite inaccessible um, in the way that it reports on a lot of these things, which is why people switch off. So how do we make that accessible? And yeah, I, I agree. I think protesting and just getting on the ground is probably one of the most, well, I don't know, I, I still think it's more effective than, you know, tweeting about it. Oh, there's no question about that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we're all familiar with, because we are journalists and spend a lot of our time on Twitter, um, are familiar with digital slacktivism and people who basically tweet a lot about certain things but don't do a great deal about them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's only so much of the discourse you can shift by tweeting about it um, and far better to create a local a local group organize and start talking to people about something mm. and talking some... to people that you normally wouldn't yeah absolutely yeah absolutely every person i tell it gets a little lighter and a little lighter at the same time i have made this dish- decision which is essential for me and essential for my head now yeah, let's talk about philip schofield coming out this week so this morning tv presenter philip schofield has revealed he's gay after 27 years of marriage to his wife stephanie the 57 year old made the announcement via statement posted on his instagram story he said you never know what's going on in someone's seemingly perfect life what issues they're struggling with or the state of their well-being and so you won't know what has been consuming me for the last few years with the strength and support of my wife and my daughters I have been coming to terms with the fact that I am gay. He continued, Today, quite rightly, being gay is a reason to celebrate and be proud. Yes, I am feeling pain and confusion, but that comes only from the hurt that I am causing to my family. Philip spoke of how supportive and loving his wife and daughters have been, even though he's been confused and at times unable to sleep. He's also said that he's had some very dark moments. He felt that making a statement publicly via social media was the best way to make an announcement like this. Maybe it was something that he he felt that he owed to his followers and fans. Do you think we've bred a culture that makes celebrities feel that this is necessary? And do you think that as a society we feel entitled to the details of celebrities' private lives? Yes, um, I think that's exactly what this speaks to. There's an expectation for people to as if people owe owe the public a coming out story or owe the public things, aspects of their life that they maybe want to keep private or not in Philip Schofield's case, because he said that he, this has been weighing on his mind and he really wanted to talk about it. And that makes sense. But I think for a lot of people, I'm trying to think of a historic example, like let's say Queen Latifah, for example, I don't think she's ever come out and confirmed uh, that she's gay, but it's, it's kind of a known thing. People know that she has a partner, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of, enjoy the fact that she's never well she maybe has felt the pressure but has never succumbed to it and felt that she had to issue this public statement I just don't think it's something that we're we just we we're owed as a as a public basically I don't think Philip owes us telling us about his private life but if he wants to that's absolutely fine I think the reaction is sort of a bit more telling than what he said it feels like the media is massively amplifying this story and if you look at it really cynically they're gaining a lot from you know the engagement on the story why has the story been so big i don't understand first thing i would just say is like all the fucking love to philip schofield man Mm. yes you know like i can't imagine how torturous making a decision like this must be It's, it's really difficult to comprehend and he was really emotional in his interview with holly and you could really tell that i mean of course and 
same. I I'm so happy that you know he is hopefully gonna be able to now navigate his life without something so heavy on his shoulders. I am worried for him though, yeah, because mm. the reaction has been kind of horrific. Yeah, I mean, I think this ties into what Cooper was saying, which is essentially until you reach a for me until you until you reach a point of total acceptance, i.e. Uh, you don't need to come out because people essentially accept that sexuality is fluid. It can be one thing one day and the next another. And because you're not in a heterosexual couple, that does not like that. That is just part of the tapestry of life. Um, and until you basically de-normalize, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right word, where basically the, het- the heterosexual couple is no longer the ideal and a couple of any kind or maybe not even a couple, someone who's asexual is not viewed as, you know, something unpleasant. Um, you don't really get to that point. I think um, the reason why it was covered, I mean, I think, you know, he announced it on on uh, on this morning. So, you know, I, it's going to be reported. I mean, he's, he's one of the most famous people in the country. I know that sounds like a funny thing to say. Yeah, he is. Yeah, massive. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, but was, also he's, you know, he's on everyone's... Sh- TVs mm. every morning. Yeah, absolutely. And it feels I, like he's a part of the family. I remember a study where he was he was he was the most fantasized about man in the country oh, by, wow. by by women in the country. And it's like he is, you know and I think part of that is to do with he is ever present on the TV. People recognize him, people see him all the time. Um and so yeah, I mean it's 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 always going to be a story, I think, because just because of his celebrity, because of his fame. Um you're absolutely right. You know, is it is it, that's a question of privacy? Is it is it the media's job to report on those sorts of things? But I don't I, think it's bad if if someone has come out and they want to, then obviously we cover that. But like, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't oh, think. absolutely. It's yeah. the, I would say totally different to that former tabloid culture of outing mm. people, which for which there is no justification and is morally abhorrent, repugnant behaviour. Mm. If he publicly wants to come out and say that, then you know the story's going to get put on. And I, yes, absolutely. You know. The reason I think well, the reason why a lot of people covered it, despite the fact that it's news, yeah, there's huge engagement in it. There's it's huge, hugely to the benefit of these news organisations, but they didn't compel Philip Schofield to. No, absolutely not. You know, th- so it's it's. I think it's there's there's an element of him announcing this and and choosing his moment and deciding to tell it now, and and people reporting it. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. It's just because I I found out about it through through a group chat. <laughs> Someone was like, Philip Schofield's gay. And I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I got a push notification <laughs> yeah. and then it was in the group chat about 30 seconds afterwards. Yeah. Same, same. Yeah, and just people, all my friends sort of at their various workplaces saying like, we stopped as a as an office to watch his his video, which is it's lovely. And that's, it's. I think there's more, I think because they're my friends and I know their, their hearts <laughs> and, and they're not all straight as well. So like for a lot of people, it's kind of, this is nice and this is, this is an interesting moment to sort of have as a country and of us all having this conversation together. But then I haven't been exposed to some of the more hateful reactions to it, thank God. But they're they're out there. And I wouldn't recommend happen. going in the comment section of his, you oh, know, God. Instagram. I, I will not. <laughs> um, it's yeah. horrific. I mean, you know, on Twitter, after 27 years was one of the top trends. Um, and you know it's because people were so shocked and surprised that after 27 years of marriage he could do something like this and you know there were comments like he robbed his wife of you know her life and things like that you know people sound like they're so concerned for his well-being and his his family's well-being but I don't think 
um, they're actually adding anything positive to the conversation. I don't think they have much regard for them as people. No, and let's say he announced that he was he wouldn't announce this because it would just happen. He was getting divorced, for example. No one would no one would care. <laughs> no one would have these these all these worries about oh his wife and his kids and what why would he, why did he make that decision and that never happens. It's I guess it's more about people not understanding that your level of sort of understanding your own sexuality can change. You can come out at fifty or sixty or never have the freedom to express or yeah to understand your own sexuality and I think that's what's confusing people they're like well he's been married for this long so how could I don't understand does it make sense and I mean yes, there's actually been quite a similar conversation with Jamila Jamil who has um, come out as queer this week and people are saying well you're in a heterosexual relationship with James Blake so how can you possibly be queer it's we need more education I know. on this people are not educated enough clearly, because they're confused as to how this works. What will it take for something like this not to even register as such a big story? How do we get there as a society to just be like, oh, great, and then just move on? Um, I think in the case of Philip Schofield, I think we get to that point <laughs> when everyone sort of understands, which is not good. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard to even imagine a, a society in which anyone or everyone was sort of on the same page about sexuality and and how fluid it is. If as you were saying before, like if we if we all get to that stage, great, then that's that's that conversation is going to happen then or or won't happen. It will just be oh that's nice, okay, let me move on with my day. With yeah, with someone like Philip Schofield, for example, I just I don't see it not being a huge deal anytime soon. For a hopefully, while. yeah. Without wanting to get like to Stephen Pinker about things, like we are moving in the right direction. Um, gay people, queer people, people of all all creeds, all colours are more accepted now than they have been in the past. That doesn't mean it's okay. That doesn't mean we're in like a good spot and it doesn't mean that we haven't got further to go. We absolutely do. Hmm. But, I've, but I feel like time, I feel like we are moving in the right direction. And as long as nothing fucking mental happens to our society, which like they, it does happen, you know, governments change societies viewpoints change but like for me we are headed in the right direction we are get we are progressing towards equality and all being well and you know we keep we we maintain that direction of travel then fingers crossed we will get to a place where it doesn't matter anymore exactly i mean you know we speak about all the horrific stuff that people have been saying about philip but there are also so many messages of love and support and it's really important to remember that and probably more people i'd like to think are supportive of his decision that you know and oh i think absolutely i think, yeah, if, I think to look, so. if you were to look at the country as a whole for me there's no Generally. question that the majority of the country will get behind him mm. you know i do i do not think that there are more homophobic people in this country than aren't i i i think on the on balance i think there are there are fewer than and the, the majority of people they're just louder, right? Absolutely, mm. absolutely, and I and I think it's often, you know, when we, we're discounting things like structural bias and structural prejudice, which is very real and punishing. But I think when you boil it down to an individual level, prejudice of that nature is becoming rarer and rarer in this country. I think. I think that's why it's hard to see sometimes sort of a positive road ahead because you're, you're dealing with all these structural issues and then you're also dealing with sort of individual things like this with Philip Schofield's in a position where 
he is already sort of loved by the country and that might help people who maybe wouldn't be okay with it generally to say, oh, okay, oh, it's fine because I I like Philip and that's fine. Only him though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it it ties back to to what I was saying about... um, about him being the most like the most fancied man in the country, right? He is like he has this huge following. He so many people see him, and almost certainly within that bracket of people, there will be some people who are homophobic. And if because of their love of the scoff, they can come round to him and be like, actually, you know what? I think Philip Schofield's a fucking great guy. Why does it matter? And that changes their opinion, and that changes their prejudice and their bias. That is a fantastic thing. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I just think all the best to him, and I really hope that. Him and his family are supported and loved and don't see, you know, the the negative stuff and can move through this. 100%. Thank you so much both for coming on. Cheers, Dave. Um, appreciate it. Had such a good time. Me too. So where can we find you on social media? Ooh, uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Kuba Red. So that's K-U-B-A, the colour red, R-E-D. <laughs> um, my Twitter is Ollie Dugmore, O-L-I-D-U-G-M-O-R-E. In other news this week, a shortage of contraception across the UK is causing chaos and risks unplanned pregnancies and abortions, doctors are warning. A court tried to force Ancestry.com to open up its DNA database to the police. The company said no. East Asian people are reporting instances of racist treatment because of the coronavirus outbreak. The death of Chinese doctor Li Wenliang, who tried to warn about the coronavirus outbreak, has sparked an unprecedented level of public anger and grief in China. Shamima Begum has lost her first stage of appeal against citizenship removal. And finally, Wacken Phoenix has been praised for calling out systemic racism at the BAFTAs. I wonder if he'll get the chance to say the same at the Oscars tonight. This has been your Broccoli Weekly. I've been your host, Diora. You can find me on Twitter at the Diora. Credits of the clips used and information can be found on our website, www.yourbroccoliweekly.com. You can join the conversation and share your views using the hashtag yourbroccoliweekly. If you liked what you heard, why not give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app? And if you loved what you heard, tell your friends. Your Broccoli Weekly is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Pocket Casts, and all your favourite apps. Your Broccoli Weekly is produced by Cass Denton. This is a Broccoli Production. <laughs>